the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Sideline Sanity with Michelle Tafoya, sponsored by Legacy Precious Metals. There has never been a better time to invest in precious metals. Visit LegacyPMInvestments.com. LegacyPMInvestments.com. Coming up, a tough look at school shootings. For nearly three decades, she's reported the action from the sidelines. She started very young. She's covered the NBA, NFL, Olympics, and the college football and basketball national championships. And now, during these insane times in our world, Michelle Tafoya thinks we need a serious dose of sanity. This is Sideline Sanity with your host, one of the sanest people on planet Earth, Michelle Tafoya. Well, I hate to have to devote a show to a mass shooting at a school, but we must. And I'll start by saying this. I just knew what was going to happen in the immediate wake of this event. I knew that, yes, many people were going to just focus on the kids and the family families as it should be, but there were going to be others who just put themselves in their corners really dug themselves into their corners on the Second Amendment. And it happened faster this time than we would have liked to have seen. But the issue is for me, isn't there some in-between? Because you've got one side saying, get rid of guns. You've got Michael Moore, the filmmaker, saying, repeal the Second Amendment. And then you've got others saying, they're coming for your guns. They're going to take your guns. That's what they want. They want to take your guns. If we're willing to do the hard work, which I'm not sure Washington's willing to do, maybe there's some place in the middle, some sort of compromise we could find that would avoid future shootings. Um, I don't know, but I'm happy to welcome John Hinderocker. He is the president of the Center for the American Experiment, Center of the American Experiment. Forgive me, Mr. Hinderocker, and I'm going to call you John because you gave me permission to do so. You wrote a piece for the Powerline blog entitled, What to Do About School Shootings. And the first line includes the shooter's name. And I, I want to ask you this, John. I'm sure the shooter, if he were alive, would have loved that. Is there any part of your thinking that includes not talking about these shooters, not naming them? I realize what he did has an historic impact. But my goodness, we're glamorizing these guys, aren't we? Well, first of all, Michelle, thanks for having me on. And you are absolutely right. And I feel I feel a little bit bad you pointed out I did it myself. Because one of the things I talk about in this piece is why do why do these more or less deranged people, almost always young men, why do they do this? Well, the fundamental answer is because they, they, they are living lives that are frustrating. Uh, they feel like they are inconsequential. The world does not respect them. And, and, and they can go out in a blaze of glory by being a school shooter. 
and and it works if if you are a, a, a person that sees yourself as a failure as inconsequential and you want to make yourself world famous well this is a tried and true way to do it and so and so one thing that a number of people have said is you know maybe if the press stopped publicizing the names of these people, you know, maybe that would be less incentive for them to do it. And the other thing, Michelle, is a lot of these people, I don't think this guy did, but but a number of these people, before they embark on their on their murderous uh, mission, they'll write a political manifesto, right? And they're always yeah. stupid, yeah. childish, incoherent, they don't make any sense. But of course, people will pour over these political manifestos looking for signs that this shooter is on the other side, you know, whatever your side is. Yeah. And that's yeah. really foolish. Yeah, whatever your that's, side is. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so and and that really, you know, those things should be completely disregarded. They're meaningless. And here again, we're just giving these people what they want. Yeah. I and I didn't mean to make you feel bad and call you out on that. I just wanted to indicate that. One of the things that I've seen is this suggestion, and it's been going, it, look, it's this isn't the first time. I remember after Sandy Hook, there were a lot of people who absolutely refused to say the name of the shooter. Unfortunately, I can still remember his name. I'm not going to say it, but clearly his name is associated with that shooting, um, and we remember it. And that bothers me because what I really want to remember is those kids and their families, and yet we remember that stupid evil name. And so I don't know though. I mean, because we're so obsessed with finding out the answers for the motivation, everyone wants to dig into this guy's past and figure out what the hell went wrong. And as you rightly say, isn't that just so we can say, ah, he was part of that other side. He was a socialist. He was a capitalist. He was a whatever. And then brand the whole other side as an associate of this guy. I think that's right, Michelle. And I think when we talk about, you know, the title of my post, as you mentioned, was what to do about school shootings, question mark. Uh, you know, Joe Biden, uh, just within hours of this of this incident, this crime uh, was was publicly talking about it. And he said, we all know what to do. We all know what to do. We, we just don't have the courage to do it. And I'm sitting there thinking, no, we don't, Joe. What are you talking about? What What is it that we supposedly all know? And and the truth, Michelle, is that it is very difficult uh, to seriously answer the question, what can we do to try to prevent these school shootings? And I think the starting point for that has to be to understand how incredibly rare they are. And one of the things I did in my post, I used the FBI definition of a mass shooting incident. That means where four or more people are killed, not counting the shooter. That's just an, kind of an arbitrary definition that the FBI uses but I think it corresponds pretty well to what we all mean when we talk about school shootings, right? And and in the 21st century, that's now 20, we're now 22 and a half years into the into the 21st century, there have been 14 school shootings by that definition. Uh, so that means they average about one every year and a half. And in a nation of 320 million people, Michelle, I mean, these are extremely rare. Incidents and I and one one very crude way of looking at it is if you, if you have 320 million people and, and they happen one every year and a half, you're looking at something that happens again in crude terms once every 480 million man years, right? So so this is really a needle in a haystack that you're trying to deal with, and it's made much more difficult by the fact that these shooters 
for the most part, intend to die. That, 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 that's, yeah. that's how they want to go out. So, so how do you deter somebody who, who intends to die? You really can't do it. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not through, you know, lack of willpower or, you know, we're all too dumb to acknowledge the obvious that we have not found an effective way to prevent these, these incidents. They, they are very rare and they're more or less impossible to deter. But you can't look those parents in the eyes and say, look, this is rare. There's not a lot we can do. You cannot. I mean, these are these are babies. Same with Sandy Hook. These were babies that were taken for anyone who's in high school or under to me is just a child. So they don't care that it's rare. They care that it happened to them. Just as, you know, the other side will say, well, it's very rare that an illegal immigrant will commit a crime. Well, uh, tell that to the family who's, you know, been victimized by that illegal immigrant. So I think one of the things we need to talk about and we are going to talk about further is these stickers on the doors of the schools. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Say no guns are on this premise or whatever the sticker reads. I've never understood that. I see it in stores. I see it at schools. I see it at churches. Why? Does that have to be there? Why are you saying, come on in? No one else has a gun. I don't understand that, John. Michelle, you're not alone. And one of the things I say in this post is, you know, I mean, um, you know, my father, now 100 years old, used to tell a joke. And the punchline of the joke was, well, I may be crazy, but I'm not stupid. And in a totally different context, obviously not a joke context, you can say the same thing about these mass murderers. They may be crazy, but they're not stupid. They choose to go to places where they think they're going to have the only gun. Where do they go? They go to gun-free zones. Now, it's not always a school, but schools typically are gun-free zones in most places. And uh, and that's where they go uh, to, to, to try to murder people. And so I think one of the very foolish things we've done in recent years is this whole gun-free zone idea. And it's not it's not foolproof by any means. But if every public school in America had at least one armed guard, that's probably the single most practical thing we could do to prevent these these terrible crimes. And I hear people who will push back on that and say, no, it's scary for the students. I tend to disagree with that. They'll say um, we don't have the money. We can't afford it, which to me is absolute utter nonsense. There's got to be a way to work that into a school's budget. There just has, there has to be, 
There just has to be. I mean, we the things that we spend money on this country, uh, we've got to protect these kids. I don't care how rare this is. This is a devastating crime. So we're going to talk later about some of the ways we can do this. But why you you mentioned in your piece that the school unions push back against this idea of a security officer. Why? Why? What's their rationale, the school unions, the teachers unions? Well, the teachers union, and, and I was thinking particularly in Minnesota, where you and I live, Michelle, but I think it's true in other places around the country. The teachers unions are very, very far left. A lot of people don't realize that. They think, oh, they're just, you know, for oh, the they kids. Are. No, they sell out the kids at every opportunity. They are very far left. They are anti-police. You know, they were buying into the whole defund the police concept and, and so on. And so it's this instinctive attitude that they've got. They say, oh, no, no, we don't want anybody to have a gun in, in our school. Well, I, I think most parents know better than that. Uh, and I think the idea that kids are frightened by a school safety officer, I don't think that's true. Uh, these are friendly I people. Uh, I, 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 I've never seen any evidence of that. And, you know, there are some places where teachers and other you know, school employees have been encouraged if they have a carry permit uh, to, to, to bring a firearm to school. And in some ways, that's even better than having a school safety officer, because somebody who's thinking about going on a murderous rampage, he just doesn't know how, how, many, how many teachers or maybe the custodian in that school is, is, is carrying. He doesn't know. And my guess is that well, those we do schools know that are going to I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I, my guess is those are not the schools that these, these would-be mass murderers are going to choose. If they know, right. And again, obviously, we're hearing that this creature's grandmother had worked at the school, so maybe he knew it. He knew about this particular entrance. You hear about single entrances required. You know, there are bulletproof glass that is available. There are all kinds of ways we could reinforce schools. These are our most precious assets in America are these children. How do we overcome this then with the teachers unions being so against this idea? What would that take to change their stance? Is it going to be a boatload of parents saying, fine, we're not going to public schools. We're going to charters. We're going to homeschool. What what would it take? Because something's got to change, whether it's Within the, and I'll get to the Second Amendment in a minute. But what would it change? What would it take to change the the union's stance on this? Is it possible, Michelle? The short answer is parents. We all saw what happened in Virginia last year, earlier this year, and and uh, we're seeing it across the country. We're seeing it in, in Minnesota, among other places. Um, for too long, the teachers' unions have had a firm grip on school boards. And parents need to take responsibility for their kids' schools. And increasingly across the country, they're realizing you can't just ignore the schools and, 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 and look to the professional administrators and the school boards and so on to, to run them. Parents have got to get involved. And, you know, I think this issue is just like the other issues, the curriculum issues and so on, where parents have started to yeah. rebel across the country. But if parents... If parents stand up and say, we're going to run candidates for our local school board who say we're going to protect the schools, you know, well, we're going to we're going to find room in the budget uh, for, for armed security officers or whatever measures they decide on. Those guys are going to get elected, Michelle, because parents yeah. Yeah. want their schools to be safe. 
You're, you're making me want to run for school board now. It's uh, because I, I just think the practicality has been thrown out the window. At, at, for <laughs> just, I, I am so angry. My mom was a teacher, so this is. I grew up the kid of a teacher. I understand what teachers desires. The real teachers who want kids to learn, and it seems contrarian now to what the unions want for their teachers to do. So uh, forgive me, I'm a little verklempt about this. Let's get to one more point before I let you go. We're talking to John Hinderaker of the Center of the American Experiment. The Second Amendment, as I mentioned, um, people are saying, repeal it, change it, do something, get rid of it. You don't have a right to a gun if my kid doesn't have a right to come home safely. I understand all those feelings. I feel it in my gut right now. The Second Amendment is likely not going anywhere. What kind of compromises are there, do you think? Are there compromises that we can reach that would prevent an 18-year-old from being able to acquire the ammunition he acquired on his birthday to create this kind of horror? It's really tough, Michelle. I mean, in general, let me just make a really broad point and then talk about the age thing. I mean, any approach that relies on the idea that we're going to prevent would-be murderers from getting their hands on a firearm, I think honestly is doomed to fail. I mean, firearms have been around for roughly 600 years now. There are hundreds of millions of them all in the United States currently. And, um, you know, I, I just I, I don't see that approach as, as having much promise. Personally, I would be, some people have suggested, well, you know, this guy shouldn't have been able to buy firearms on his 18th birthday. How about if we raise the uh, age uh, to 21, say, where you can buy a firearm? I actually would be open to that, although I think, you know, you'd have to look hard at the constitutional issue. Can you, can you do that? But, but here's the other thing. You know, we've got a whole lot of 18, 19, 20-year-olds serving in the U.S. military who handle firearms, right. who are experts at handling that's firearms. That's the immediate, so yeah, that's the immediate pushback people come up with is, wait a minute, if I'm 18, I can join the military and handle firearms. Why can't I do it outside of the military? But I think that's one of those little nuances that within the military, you're supervised. You have a chain of command. You have training. Outside of the military, you do not. So can we draw that distinction and codify it some way? Well, I think we could. Again, there would be a legal challenge, and I haven't researched it or analyzed it. You'd have to get past that hurdle. But as I say, personally, I'd be open to, you know, raising the age uh, when when anybody can legally buy a firearm. Uh, that said, I mean, firearms are not that hard to procure. You know, we have a problem that felons are all the time getting their hands on firearms using straw purchasers, you know, so... Um, uh, it's 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 not that simple, but it, but you know that's something we certainly could could look at. I think that hard work needs to be done. I think we can agree on that. That we cannot just get in the corners of the boxing ring and point the finger in the other direction and say you're wrong, you're evil. No, you're wrong, you're evil. There has to be some hard work done. Can it be done in Washington? I don't think so, John. I think it's got to be done. On the local levels, maybe is is that is that something then that's just going to be if you try to do it at a state level, it's going to be constitutionally challenged and therefore doomed. Well, no, I wouldn't say that. No, no, I think I agree with you. I think I think that the local level, the state level, are 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 much more promising avenues to get things done. The other thing I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention Michelle is the whole issue of mental health. 
I mean, when, when these shooters, not just school shooters, but other mass murderers, when, when one of these events, incidents happens and then you look into who was this person, usually it's somebody, everybody who knew him knew he was, he was nuts. You know, the worst school shooting episode we've ever had was that one some years ago now at Virginia Tech. And, and right. after that guy, that student, he killed, I think, 31 people. It was terrible. And afterward, think, they, they interviewed fellow him, yeah. students and they said, yeah, yeah, we always said if there's ever going to be a shooter here, it's that guy. And I remember a, a young woman who was in one of his classes being interviewed and she said, yeah, I had a class with that guy and I always sat next to the door so I could get out if he pulled a gun and started firing. So, so, you know, and I, and we don't know much about this latest guy yet, you know, facts slowly dribble out, but again, you know, we're looking at very serious mental health issues that in most cases are obvious. I mean, the Parkland guy wrote on Facebook, I'm going to be a school shooter, right? I mean, yeah. you know, how's that for a clue? And, and, and here's my point, Michelle, we basically don't have a mental health system in this country. You know, we emptied out the institutions the insane asylums, as we used to call them, in what, the 1970s uh, as, a, as a kind of a liberation. And that's one of the reasons for the homeless problem that we have now. But I think as a society, not only because of school shooters and so on, but much more broadly, there are a lot of people who are seriously, seriously disturbed and are not getting uh, help that they need. And, and I think one good thing that potentially could come out of the attention that we're paying to, to this incident and similar similar crimes is, is if we can focus on mental health and have a more constructive conversation about how we can identify and better deal with some of these people who are obviously deeply troubled. John Hinderaker, the president of the Center of the American Experiment, so appreciate your time. And you're absolutely right. Folks, we've got to do a deeper dive. We can't be lazy about this stuff. We can't just point fingers and argue about it. There's got to be some unity over finding constructive answers to these issues. And mental health is a big one in this country. And maybe, maybe that's why in America we're, we're seeing these mass shootings more than other places because we don't care about mental health in the way that we should. And uh, there's a lot of rot going on in this culture, and we better fix it fast. John, thank you so much again for your time. Thank you, Michelle. Have Appreciate a great day. It. Coming up, we're going to talk to Peter Johnson of Archway Defense. They design ways to protect churches and other establishments from this kind of attack, for lack of a better word. And we'll talk to him next. Friends, since November of last year, the stock market has plummeted. But gold? Well, gold's been on the rise. Now, gas prices are insane. The stock market's extremely volatile. Inflation is even worse than it was last year. And now there's this war with Russia and Ukraine that could spread to the rest of the world. I mean, markets, they don't like this kind of instability. But the good news is you have options. Gold prices are rising as investors turn to gold for protection. Gold provides a hedge against inflation and protects against a weakening dollar. Legacy Precious Metals is the only company I trust for investing in gold and silver. You need an investment that will protect your wealth and retirement. Call Legacy Precious Metals today. Be proactive while there's still time. Remember 2008? 
Those who invested in gold saw huge gains, while others lost their retirements. Legacy Precious Metals can advise you on all of your options in investing in gold and silver. You can speak to an IRA expert at Legacy Precious Metals at 866-528-1903, 866-528-1903, or download their free investor's guide at LegacyPMInvestments.com. So now to the tougher part of this issue with the school shooting. We'd like the world to be a perfect place. It is not. And so we need to deal with the world as it is, not as we would like it to be. That's something we have to accept. Life ain't fair and it ain't perfect. And let's deal with it as it is. School shootings have happened. Likely there will be another one in our future. And so I thought I'd call in Peter Johnson. He's the founder of Archway Defense Team. He's got an amazing background uh, as a federal air marshal, among other things. And uh, Peter, I I felt like you would be a good person to talk to about soft targets. Can schools be a place where we can feel safe with security there? Um, And so thanks for being here. Let me just start with your initial reaction to this story down in Texas and, and the thoughts that go through your mind immediately when a soft target like this gets attacked in this way? Well, no matter what, because we're human, the first thing is the kids. Thinking of innocent kids, their lives are lost because of the evil that was perpetrated in Texas and at other schools that have had attacks. So first and foremost, you start thinking about the victims. And then in our profession, the question is, okay, what could have been done to mitigate this? What, where were the opportunities lost? How can we reduce the probability or the propensity for this in the future? And that's ultimately what we do at Archway Defense. Right. And so when you look at this, one of the things I hear from a lot of people, and it's one of the the first things you hear is single entrance, single entry point to a school. Is that feasible? How, how, How logical is that? So it is a, it is a logical step. The, the danger in moments like this, because this just happened, we had a couple active shooters um, in in New York and California not too long ago. And the conversation always goes to, if we only do this one thing, if we only, depending on where your ide- ideological lines fall, it's either do this, this, or this. And where really we need to start looking at is a holistic approach on a localized level, because what's appropriate for a school in maybe downtown Manhattan uh, those procedures and processes might not be appropriate for a school in, let's say, Alabama. So local solutions are often the best solutions, but the there are best practices, even from uh, your past background of stadium security, which we do yeah. work in that sector also, is there are best practices of a layer of security approach. And that's one thing that uh, if we could discuss is changing the mindset of this one thing to a layered approach of mitigation, not there's no one layer that's perfect, but the more layers that you reasonably put in place uh, makes it that much harder for an attack to be carried out successfully. You raise a very, very good point, And that is that people think if we had just done this one thing, if, you know, if, if we had just had an officer at the door, well, apparently there was an officer at this school who exchanged fire with the perpetrator and that didn't accomplish anything. So, so layers is really interesting. And I think the initial reaction from schools is going to be layers sounds costly. Um, 
Is that a, an honest, reasonable reaction? Uh, it, depending on, again, the layer, there could be very expensive layers. But there's also layers in the concept of process security. Uh, ProSec, process security. Simply having outdoor doors that you can leave for fire code, but that you can't get in easily. Um, and making sure that if you do have to infill uh, a larger school, that maybe you have multiple points of entry, but during the day after the infill is done, everything gets locked down to that single point of entry where you can have more resources. Um, and then having simple stuff like door uh, door alarms. So if a door is propped open from the inside or left ajar, that somebody can quickly ascertain whether why that door was unsecured. These are very small things, but those aren't expensive at all, really. You, the most, most expensive thing is simply sitting down and deciding, are we serious about this? Whether it's a school or faith-based, whether it's a stadium or an airport, and we've worked with all of those. The, the hardest part in large corporations is, are we actually serious about this? Do we want to put in reasonable mitigation? We're not talking about moats and alligator pits. <laughs> it's yeah. reasonable mitigation based on the threat probability of the location. All right. Threat probability of a location. Yeah. And you raised another excellent point, which is a school in Manhattan is going to be far different Correct. from the school that we just saw in Uvalde, Texas, that, you know, it's it's nearly rural. Um, so we're Very talking different. about totally different scenarios. Um, it doesn't seem difficult to me as a parent, as someone who's gone through school, as, as my mom was a school teacher, to say, we got to protect these places. You know, I, and it's become so political. How much have you found in, in your work? I, I would imagine at Archway, by the time they get to you, they've decided they're serious, right? Generally speaking, um, by the time they get to us, if they are if our, if they are a client, they're absolutely serious because simply we were too busy to have the hummers and hars or just check the box level security. Yeah. The, the point you brought up is you think about your kid's school. And when the, when the parents get involved, a lot can change pretty quickly, as we've seen in other topics. When parents get involved and say, this is serious, I look around at the airports and we have armed security and we have very reasonable mitigation. We look at the sports stadiums and arenas, very tight security. I mean, literally yes. Joint Terrorism Task Force is stationed outside. And I'd, yeah. I'd argue if any politician's kid was at this school, it would have had better security. You know what? That's almost humorous and angering at the same time. It's like it's so it's so obvious. And and maybe this is a tipping point when we see a little school in a tiny town get attacked like this. And we've everyone's saying that typical enough is enough uh, that we start looking at this seriously and that parents start arguing for, you know what? This is the most precious thing we have in America is our children. So let's get serious. All right. If, so, if a school decides to get serious and you talk about the layers, you talked about the single entry and then having these exit points available, but not able to enter. Correct. Um, what other kinds of layers are reasonable for an at, let's just say an average school. Yeah. An average school. There's a couple of really easy things. Um, glazing. So in higher events or in banks, they have ballistic glass, which is very expensive, very heavy, but there's retrofitting that you can do to industrial glass or commercial glass, which is simply a uh, film that's applied to both sides of the glass so that a uh, would-be attacker can't shoot 
they can shoot through it, but they can't break through it in a reasonable amount of time. It might take 10, 20 minutes to get through that one piece of glass. And this actually okay. came out of a, another active shooter, uh, active threat out on the East Coast where the individual got into the school, doors were locked, the teacher did the right thing, they locked the doors, but the glass between um, the hallway and the, the schoolroom or the classroom wasn't protected in any way. It didn't have that mesh on it or glazing. So they broke through the, the attacker broke through the glass and was able to reach into the room, unlock the door and, and unfortunately kill more kids. These are very inexpensive, a couple dollars per square foot. Uh, most schools, even in the most rural could afford that if they planned out on the budgeting and it can be installed by literally your, your local maintenance individual. Really? That, that is like a no brainer to me. That's just a no brainer. All right. I also heard a, a woman talking about some sort of ballistic blanket that you can hang. Are you familiar with these? Yeah. So uh, ballistic blanket is simply either Kevlar or uh, poly mix uh, that's designed to spread out the energy or displace the energy of a round impacting. So it can't punch through it. Those are now you're going to get into thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars, depending on the size of it, which is an option if you can put it into the budget or make funds. Um, but even on the budget note, the we we know that we spend money all over the place in this country on a state, local and federal <laughs> level that is probably best spent, uh, spent on maybe the, our most valuable asset, which is the future generation of the country and keeping them safe. Mm -hmm not just physically, but mentally, emotionally safe so that they can become functioning members of society in the future and then hopefully surpass where we came from. So we spend money on all sorts of things, on uh, foreign aid. The federal government spends yeah. a lot of money. And that's one of the conversations that took place within our circles, within the, the defense, security, and contracting fields over the past 24 hours was we just signed billions of dollars. And we did the rough math. It's about, if you broke that down to every school in the country, it's roughly $305,000 that we just gave away to another country to protect their country. Every school in the country could have had a grant for $305,000 to harden their schools, to bring in meaningful security, hire security staff if they don't have any. So the argument of, is there money out there? It's almost embarrassing because of what we spend our money on by contrast to the severity of what happens when evil gets into a school like this? I got to tell you, my heart just sank when you said that. For every school, three hundred five thousand dollars. What what could be done to protect these kids? It's it's laughable and it's cryable. I don't know what to feel right now because, as as much as I support helping out other countries in need, I want to know my kid is safe. Every parent in America would trade a lot to know that their kid is safe, to get those 19 kids back right now. If it, you think about that, it's a drop in the freaking bucket. I don't, I don't even know how to respond. That's such powerful information. Peter Johnson is my guest. Um, five years as a federal air marshal. Uh, it, it, you know, just I, I'm going through your your bio here because I think it's so important. You were a top gun at the Federal Air Marshal Academy in 2010, six years in the United States Air Force, air based defense, deploying internationally to uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom, Operation Enduring Freedom. I mean, you've you've seen a lot. You're clearly an expert. And it's interesting to me that you and your your current role 
you you guys are already talking about this and thinking about how this could have been mitigated, how this could have been prevented. I, I guess I want to give you the final comment here to tell us what, you, you know, if, if you were in charge, pie in the sky, what is the first thing Peter Johnson would do right now in the wake of this hideous tragedy? Well, starting off with one, the understanding that evil is real. And if you don't believe that evil is truly real in the world, then looking at these kids being murdered and not associating that with pure evil, I don't know how where we can grow from that. So first, evil is real. There are people in the world that would gladly harm every single person you know and love um, and would be okay with it. Once you understand that foundation, everything else starts to make sense. And then your mitigation starts building from there. But one of the problems that we focus on in the country is because we're so obsessed with a quick news cycle of just the next thing, the next thing, is simply the concept of people snap or uh, that an individual just never saw it coming. When we know statistically and empirically that that is just not true, that often, very often, the attacker is well known in in advance and what we call pre-assault indicators or precursors to violence are uh, displayed at large numbers, and even the FBI's own data supports this. They say that be, when when it comes to even workplace violence or active shooters in a workplace, that when violence comes from an employee or someone close to an employee, there's a much greater chance that warning signs would have reached the employer in the form of observable behavior. That's kind of their keynote on that research project, observable behavior. Everybody in our industry understands that the key to success and the greatest impact is getting it before it happens, the mitigation piece. Unfortunately, we only focus on that critical moment of when it happens, um, opposed to seeing what precursors to violence were there and how do we mitigate that before it even happens. And people need to not be afraid to come forward with that information. There's, I think, don't you think there's a little bit of a stigma like, oh, I don't want to be the one to say it, but this guy's a little weird or this guy's acting in a way that, Someone needs to take care of it. Well, we'll just let the family do that. I mean, there is that stigma. How do you suggest we conquer that? Again, it comes back to that first portion of the comment, which evil is real. Once you understand that evil is real, all political correctness goes out the window. Because if it's the difference of between offending somebody and saving those 19 kids' lives or any other attack, the, the choice, it's, it's not even a choice. Um, your feelings can get repaired. Those kids are gone. So once we understand that evil is real, it focuses the conversation, it focuses the, the decisiveness of what we're going to do next, and ultimately it gives us a path that we can actually achieve a successful outcome in mitigation. Peter, I'm so glad we had this conversation. It reinforces a lot of what I already knew to be true or believed to be true, but to hear it from an expert who deals with this stuff, who helps corporations, churches, other places that want to accept that reality. And we all need to accept that reality that, as you said, it's, it's out there. It's going to manifest itself in ways and we're better off prepared for it than we are to just be frozen by fear of it. Or that again, that stigma of, I don't want to be the one to call someone out. I, I, I can think of many, many people right now who wish that someone had called this human, this creature, this animal out before it had come to this. Peter, I hope we can talk again. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
I, I'm left sort of at a loss for words. When you hear an expert like the gentleman we just had on Peter Johnson say evil is real, accept it. It's not pretty, but it's life. And we see it all over the world. Now, the most vulnerable of our citizens, these kids, the most vulnerable people on earth, we need to protect them. It is worth every dollar. The way that we spend money, as he just said, and I want to reiterate it, the amount that we sent to Ukraine to support that very good cause would have covered $305,000 for every school in America to implement some sort of security. Think about that. Maybe fundraisers, maybe bake sales, maybe whatever it is. If you're looking for somewhere to put your money, I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. But what I do know is that our kids deserve this protection. Parents deserve the the comfort of knowing that their kids are in school and they're safe and they're going to be safe. We can do this stuff. He just said it's not that expensive. We can do this stuff. How serious are we about doing it? If you're a parent or a grandparent, I have a feeling your mind might be a little changed after listening to that. I hope so. Thanks for this first week of Sideline Sanity. We'll see you next week. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.